بسم الله الحمد لله والصلاه والسلام على رسول الله وعلى اله وصحبه اجمعين وبقي ذا نيو الله all praise and glory be to Allah and may his finest peace and blessings be upon his messenger Muhammad and his family and his companions and all those who tread his path welcome back everyone inshallah we will begin a a series of talks that are unrelated <laughs> inshallah azza wa jal due to a number of reasons uh, tonight's talk being as you should see above you the subject of solidifying our faith solidifying our faith uh, against what may time and time again challenge it and overcoming the doubts that may time and time again arise and this is normal and this is not just in our generation even if the stakes may be higher and the slippage may be uh, more often in our time and place for reasons we will discuss but ultimately, at the end of the day, Allah Azza wa Jal says, "لَقَدْ خَلَقْنَا الْإِنسَانَ فِي كَبَدٍ." We created the human being in a state of toil, in a state of toil, meaning there's scraping, there's striving, there's trying, there's pushing, there's struggle, there's hardship, and that's just, you know, the nature of this world. Exam questions being too easy are not really questions; they're not really assessing anything. And so, if this life is an exam. There's going to be all sorts of questions. But as we said at the end of Surah Al-Kahf, it's an open book exam. And you have the answers in front of you if you look in the book. And so we wish to look through the book of Allah Azza wa Jal in light of the subject. That we're going to have hardships even in our faith. Like the people before us did, even if the nature of those challenges to our faith may vary a little bit. And the first way I want to discuss this is what is it that opens the door for doubt? May Allah protect us from shirk ever confusing anything about him that is unbefitting or equaling anything with him that is unworthy and also check the doubt that can lead to this shirk. So, you know, in its inaugural study, Yaqeen Institute which obviously is a, is a research institute and a da'wah organization that I'm hoping many of you are familiar with or get familiar with after tonight. They try to map out, you know, what are the inlets or the pathways to doubt. And after they, you know, had this large study performed, they tried to categorize the most common 20 or 30 reasons for doubt and then they divided them into these three categories. The first of them is what they call the moral and social concerns people have with Islam. What keeps Muslims sometimes on the fence? Uh, and so moral concerns like what exactly is the role or the status of women in Islam? Why do bad things happen uh, at the hands of people who claim to be Muslim or claim that Islam sort of called them to this action? Bad things people do in the name of religion. And also just the intolerance, the intolerance some religious people show. Like acting like that only their way is right. So these things cause people to be averse because of those moral and social concerns they have. Then the second category in the middle there is what they called philosophical and scientific concerns. So it feels like, you know, logic, philosophy, or science, empirical data is contrary to Islam and pushes us away from Islam, for instance, you know, is there any philosophical or scientific proof for God existing? Or is it uncertain philosophically, uncertain scientifically, uh, that uncertainty over the existence of God because there is 
supposedly no data, no facts, no evidence for it. Then the whole discussion of evolutionism versus creationism. How do you figure out, you know, uh, this whole mess with Islam saying, or religions is saying, including Islam, that Allah created the first human being as is, as an adult, right? And Adam alayhi salam is the father of humanity uh, versus the, the evolution story that we hear about in biology classes and in the scientific community. Or, for example, how certain beliefs and practices simply are illogical, are irrational. They philosophically don't hold water. So that's another bucket. And then the third is that of personal and emotional concerns. Personal and emotional concerns. So people say, I've tried religion. They thought they gave Islam a fair chance, and it simply didn't give me anything. I didn't feel any happiness or any improved quality of life because I'm, I'm Muslim. Or, for example, someone felt snubbed by the fellow Muslims, you know, just in the community. Uh, people were not nice to me, right? I felt ostracized, alienated by the community. Uh, or people have this personal trauma in their lives. Or they have this personal trauma in their lives, such as the death of a loved one. So I think an easy way, because we're not going to obviously get into these things, and it would be counter to the very strategy I want to propose to many of you today, with regards to doubts that a person may have, or you may know someone that has it, addressing these things retail is actually uh, a rabbit hole you may never climb out of. It's actually not as productive as you may think. But let us at least summarize them in a way that people have doubts many a times for intellectual reasons, moral and social, philosophical, scientific, all that, call it intellectual reasons, right? And then there are emotional reasons. There are emotional reasons, which is the whole personal uh, grievances. And after separating them into intellectual and emotional, I want you to realize that these aren't separate buckets. They're not. They are very much related categories. They're not separate categories. They feed each other more often than you think. You know, there are even sort of like neuro neurological studies that experts, you know, uh, talk about how, you know, the most recent data is uncovering for us more and more every brand new day uh, how human beings are far more uh, impressed upon. Their decisions are far more the result of emotionality than we thought and far less the result of rationality than we thought. You always think I'm being objective, I'm being rational, I'm being fair and all that. But actually, as they control for this in one test after another, they're starting to say, you know, maybe, maybe we're tricking ourselves just a little bit. You know, maybe we're actually not arriving at what we're discovering, but we're arriving at what we want to arrive at. Confirming our biases, our predetermined conclusions, our preconceived notions. So, number one, realize that intellectual and emotional affect each other. Like, I'll give you an example. Emotional. If a person were to grow up in a household when they saw, where they saw the women of their household being disrespected or abused or persecuted, let's say, right? They are far more susceptible then whether they realize it or not, to the intellectual objection or concern of why does Islam say this about women? Why does Islam say that about women? Right? 
they are more than likely to say, yeah, that makes no sense, I'm out of here. How come a woman inherits half? They, will, they won't have it in them for subconscious reasons that are originally emotional. They won't have it in them to say, wait a minute, what's the whole story? Oh, she gets half but doesn't have to spend on herself. He gets double and he has to spend on her and her sisters and her mom. They won't have it in them, the bandwidth to do that. The emotional bandwidth, but they think it was an intellectual reason why they doubted and left. Is that clear? Very good. Now, let's talk about an important checklist when doubts do arrive. The first thing you want a person to do, whether ourselves or is to identify, clarify, I use the word clarify, right? Clarify, is this a doubt or not? Because not every doubt is the type of doubt that should alarm you, that should make you feel like, oh man, this threatens my faith. No, not at all. There is a category of presumed doubts just called weswesa, called passing thoughts. Passing thoughts. You're fine. We all get them. The Sahaba had them. Right? In one hadith, the Prophet ﷺ said, Shaytan will continue to pester you, asking you who created this and who created this. You know, if, if this was from you, this would be an act of worship, reflecting on what is made by the hand of God, if you will, grows your faith. But he's sort of trying to sabotage your faith, right? Who created this, who created this, and you keep saying Allah, 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 until he tells you, but then who created Allah? Right? He tries to confuse you there about this cause and effect thing, this createdness of things is a rule of our world. It does not apply to Allah Azza wa Jal. He is not part of our world. He is the creator of our war world and its laws. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so he said, when shaitan asks you that question, who created God? Say, amantu billahi wa rusulih. Say, I've believed in God. Ignore that question. Because if you don't ignore that question, you will actually have, have no answer for it. If you actually give in to this passing thought, you start entertaining it, it gets louder and louder, you will get sucked into a black hole that we call radical skepticism, radical doubt. You'll, you'll develop a psychology of just doubting anything and everything. And if you develop that, then no proof will work, right? No proof will work. If you tell me now, well, how do we know God exists? I'm going to tell you, well, how do you know you exist? And then you're going to say, whoa, that's deep. That's true. Maybe, I, maybe I'm inside the video game of an alien, right? Maybe I'm part of, you know, an extraterrestrial's imagination. You'll just get sucked into this and it would render life meaningless and it would render you paralyzed, right? And so ignoring these whispers is the only key. It's the only way. Don't get bogged down by them. And in another hadith, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, إِنَّ اللَّهَ تَجَاوَزَ لِي عَنْ أُمَّتِي فِيمَا حَدَّثَتْ بِهَا أَنفُسُهَا مَا لَمْ تَعْمَلْ بِهِ أَوْ تَكَلَّمْ بِهِ Allah has pardoned my ummah for whatever its soul suggests to it. These passing whispers, so long as it does not act on it. And so long as it does not speak of it. Speak of it means what? Like accept it, let it settle, and put, advocate it. Doesn't mean like ask a, an expert, hey, what do I do here? Right? That's fine. But when you allow, when you believe it, how do you know you believed it? Because you acted on it or you promoted it? You promoted it. That's the idea. Any questions on this? The Sahaba, I said to you, had this issue. The companions of the Prophet, one of them said, Ya Rasulullah, 
and they were several, but in one incident he said, I hear things, like these thoughts, these astaghfirullah thoughts, <laughs> come to me sometimes. They're so bad that if I were to free fall from the sky to smash on the ground, I'd rather that happen to me than actually explain to you what I'm hearing. Hor horrible, right? She's like, Allah khayra, Mr. Adorable. How am I supposed to reach that now? So uh, he said, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Are you really experiencing that? Then he said, Praise be to Allah who restricted his schemes. Whose schemes? Shaitan's schemes, the devil's schemes to simply whisper, simply suggest all he can do. He's tapping out. All he could do is just, you know, blitz you with whispers. And then he said, this is important. He said, that is pure faith. You're, you think you have a doubt. He's saying that's pure faith. What's pure faith? Not the doubt. The fact that you're bothered by the doubt is a sign of your faith. The fact that you came to the Prophet ﷺ because you're uncomfortable and complaining and feeling guilty, that means you're a believer, right? You heard the whisper, what'd you do? You went and complained about it. You looked for a remedy for it, yes? You didn't sort of like stop praying and go to the club, did you? So your resistance to the doubt is a sign of pure faith. You say, that's a reassurance, right? These aren't actually doubts in type of doubts that would sabotage your deen. And then he said, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, فَإِذَا وَجَدَ أَحَدُكُمْ ذَلِكَ فَلْيَسْتَعِذْ بِاللَّهِ وَلْيَنْتَهِ when one of you finds themselves sort of barraged with these whispers, let them seek refuge with Allah. Say, A'udhu Billahi Minash Shaitan Rajeem. I seek refuge with Allah from, you know, the cursed shaitan. And let them, وَلْيَنْتَهِ Let them desist, meaning interrupt themselves. Interrupt the thought. Change the subject. Ignore it. You know, even people that have like obsessive convulsive disorder when they go to those cognitive behavioral therapists, what they, all they do is what? What the Prophet ﷺ said in that hadith. They teach you how to self-interrupt, how to sort of, over time, train yourself to not give in to the, that pestering prompt inside you to, you know, keep chewing your nail until you bleed, or keep washing the dishes until your skin falls off, or whatever it is, right? So, to teach yourself to ignore these is how you deal with passing thoughts, or else their volume gets higher, you ignore them, their volume gets lower, until they disappear altogether, inshallah. Clear? Second subject, <clears throat> stratify. Stratify means put them in sort of like a hierarchy. Grade them. Uh, what does that mean? That means there are sometimes you have actual questions about Islam, right? They're not passing thoughts. They're legit concerns, legit or pressing confusions you have. But you want to say, wait a minute, am I doubting Islam here? Or am I doubting something in Islam here? Right? That's very important. Because something you may not understand in Islam is not necessarily something that would warrant disqualifying or walking away from Islam. Don't you agree? And you know, all scholars of Islam, they've practiced what is called tawaqquf, called suspending judgment. Like these are scholars of Islam. Forget the average Muslim. Scholars of Islam who have the highest, you know, knowledge about the deen and the highest spiritual refinement usually because of the deen that they carry. These scholars say, and I really am not comfortable with 
having an opinion on this. I really don't know how to reconcile those two texts. But they're fine with it. Why? Because they understand this deen is bigger than us all. This deen contains more wisdom than any one individual can understand. Right? This is from Allah Azza wa Jal. He is Al-Hakim. He's the most wise. So I should expect to not be able to grasp all of the wisdom. You with me? And so to say, oh yeah, I'm not really doubting Islam here. I'm just not understanding. I'm sort of, I have a misconception about something in Islam and it's causing some discomfort. That's fine. It's fine for that to happen. Because humans want to know. Humans want to be certain. The fact that you can't have certainty in every last detail of the deen, what it means or why it means that, is not a, is not a deal breaker. You know, and another reason for this, why it's so important to stratify, is because let's say someone else brings you the doubt, right? You're not, what, what is a good enough answer for you may not be a good enough answer for them. Right or wrong? So where are we going here? Uh, I remember there was a, uh, uh, a Christian missionary sister who, uh, she used to like attend classes. I found out after a while. We used to debate with her like every day in the computer lab. She ran the computer lab in college. She used to attend classes every Wednesday on how to debate Muslims on their book, on the Quran. And so I was giving a talk on my campus, Brooklyn College, about women's rights in Islam and how Islam honored women and distinguished them to the end of it. She heard me say something and she walked out. The, the sister told him, by the way, so-and-so, I forget her name right now, I probably wouldn't mention it anyway, but she walked out. I was like, why'd she walk out? So uh, everything I was saying was like really flowery and nice. So I, next time I saw her, I was like, I heard you, you didn't like what I had to say. Uh, we had a good relationship. We could talk through these things, right? She said, it makes no sense. You talk about like justice and even gender, gender justice. Then you say in the same breath that your prophet said, your mother, your mother, your mother, then your father. That's not justice. Can you imagine? <laughs> like that's the one hadith that gets all the girls to go, oh, you know, <laughs> Islam is so beautiful. And that's the one hadith that, that sort of drove her away. Right? But wait a minute, is it justice that the mother gets three times the right to kindness as the father? Is three equal to one? That's like a trinity question, right? <laughs> is it? At face value, it's not. So do you have a response for this? She has a sort of a point there, doesn't she? Maybe at first glance, till you stop for a second and you, you trust it and you say, wait a minute, let me think through this. There, there's, a, there's a wisdom here, perhaps there's a wisdom, and then you say, like Al-Khurtubi rahimahullah said, it's because she carried you by herself and delivered you by herself and then uh, nursed you by, yourself, by herself, and then the dad sort of helped a little bit more with the other stuff, and so therefore she has tripled the right in full justice. This is the right to kindness, obviously, that, uh, that is intended in this hadith. But what I'm trying to say is here, is that a reason, if you couldn't understand what is the wisdom for the triple emphasis on mom over dad, to say Islam is unjust? No. I just don't get it. Right? Many people, because they think something is objectionable to them, to their taste, they think it means it's impossible. No, it's not impossible. There's also a possibility that we simply don't understand this. Right or wrong? Maybe there's a reason why I think it's unacceptable. By the way, I found out later. Do you know why she couldn't get around that hadith? Because she hated her mom growing up. She admitted this to me. 
We'll talk about that. More emotionality than rationality sometimes, right? But you may not always notice it. So stratify. Is this really a doubt of Islam or like a doubt, a misunderstanding, uh, an unknown that makes you uncomfortable within Islam? Because that's normal. When the companion said, or the man, before he became a companion said, Oh, Messenger of Allah, I want to become Muslim, but I find resistance inside me. أَجِدْنِي كَارِهًا Like it's, I would be doing it against my, my will. قَالَ أَسْلِمْ وَلَوْ كُنْتَ كَارِهًا He said, become Muslim and even if you don't like it. Even if it's like uncomfortable for you. Breaking habits takes time. Getting used to the light in, after the dark takes time. Doesn't mean the light is bad, right? And so, don't allow that to erode your yaqeen. Your little bit of a doubt about something within Islam should never challenge your fundamental belief about Islam to begin with being the truth. For very good reasons. You should learn about them. Not wishful thinking, you know, not blind faith. It is very, very, very justified for so many reasons. Okay. Number three, you have to have a strategy when you, when you deal with doubts. What is the strategy? Don't seek out doubts to get rid of doubts. Why? Because there's too many. Right? Our, if your faith is going to be dependent on having the right answer for an endless number of criticisms, endless number of doubts, endless number of accusations, then you'll die before you develop some faith. Right? Here's another reason. You need to realize that getting rid of your doubts and building your faith are actually two separate things. What do I mean? Let's imagine you had the intelligence and the lifespan to answer every single doubt. That just removes an accusation from Islam, right? It doesn't actually prove the truth of Islam. So example, let's go back to the woman example. Let's... Islam oppresses women. Why do you say that? Here's a list of ayat and ahadith. Let's say you're able to arrive at a satisfactory answer and even convince the person in front of you with, the with answers that are good enough for them that, Islam, that those don't mean Islam oppresses women. What have you done there? Have you proven Islam is true? You haven't. You just proved that Islam doesn't oppress women. So, right? If... Islam promotes violence. Why do you say Islam promotes violence? Here's 115 texts between the Quran and the Sunnah. We get through all of those. All it means is what? Islam is pro-peace. So what? Everybody's pro-peace. You get it? You've just made Islam acceptable. You haven't made Islam valuable or distinguished. And so building your faith is such a better strategy than trying to dismantle your doubts. Is that clear? You believe why you believe. You develop why you believe. Islam is true. Then let the doubts come. If I have time for them, I have time for them. If I don't, I already know what I'm standing on. I know why I'm standing on it. You know, as Ibn al-Qayyim says, the best advice I ever got in the world after Quran and Sunnah uh, is the advice of Nitaymiyah, my teacher, rahimahullah, who said, don't let your heart be a sponge. It just, you know, come at me. I'll soak it all up. No, who can do that? Who can handle that? You will have no choice but to soak up all the doubts and they'll continue oozing out of you even after you wash the sponge a hundred times, still some soap keeps, you know, oozing, right? You'll still not be able to get rid of all the residue. He says, so he said to me, don't be like a sponge, be like solid glass that sees the doubt but doesn't suck it up. 
you build out your glass defenses. You build out your bulletproof glass so that doubt hits it and it slides off. And I'll actually give you guys a personal uh, story of mine. I don't want to over-dramatize this. I've never left Islam, alhamdulillah. But I'll tell you, I had a professor in college, undergrad. The class was modern Middle East, understanding the makeup of the modern Middle East. The professor was a, uh, he was a secular Jew whose PhD was in the modern Middle East. His, his, his specialization was the fall of the Ottoman Empire. But this guy lived to be a contrarian. He just lived to disagree with people. He just lived to prove people wrong. And so like, he actually was like very anti-Zionist. I believe he didn't care. He just is poking the buttons of the Jews in my campus. <laughs> That's the reason why. He wanted to be like the eccentric Jew. And then when it came to us, the class is modern Middle East. We walk into class one day. And he has a Xerox, a photocopy of a page from Sayyid al-Bukhari. The Hadith collection, Sayyid al-Bukhari, English. He has a page photocopied. The class is like 80% Muslim. Uh, and he puts it on all our desks. It has nothing to do with the modern Middle East. <laughs> He's basically showing us that you guys don't know Islam and stuff. Contrarian. Uh, and so what is that page from Sayyid al-Bukhari? It is a hadith, the famous hadith of... Zayd ibn Thabit radiallahu anhu you know Zayd ibn Thabit was the man radiallahu anhu may Allah be pleased with him who compiled the Quran the hadith says that Abu Bakr al-Siddiq was approached by Umar al-Khattab and Hudayf ibn al-Yaman had come to them and said so many of the expert reciters are dying off the Quran could be lost yes Allah will preserve it but we have a duty so we, what we need to do is we need to compile the Quran into a book and spread that book into different lands so that people aren't debating on you know people are coming into Islam not, Arabic is not the first language for everybody let's standardize this and so after a while, they say, nobody better than Zaid. Let's bring Zaid in. Zaid said it, was, it would have been easier for them to ask me to relocate a mountain than to be the guy responsible for the Quran, but I did it. And I would not trust myself with the Quran, and I didn't put any ayah in that Quran unless I found it with the companions to testify, to concur with me and corroborate. This is how the ayah was spoken by the Prophet ﷺ, taught by the Messenger of Allah. Okay? Sallallahu alayhi wasallam. The end of the hadith says, and I could not find the last ayat of Surah At-Tawbah except with Khuzaym ibn Thabit. That's it. That's how the hadith, that narration, that's how it ends. Of course, he's looking at us with a cheesy smile saying, see, Quran's transmission, that's what he's insinuating, right? Isn't as reliable as you think. There are ayat, there are ayat that people didn't know about. That he simply found them with some less famously known companion. And this is an example of that. I'll tell you, I was extremely bothered because it was the first time I was coming across this hadith. And I, I don't want to say I didn't sleep, but I was up with my slow AOL internet connection. <laughs> you know, uh, pacing back and forth through the internet, trying to get to the bottom of this hadith. And by the way, there's, actually, there's nothing problematic about this hadith. It's all about context. You, you figure out, oh, wait a minute. Zayd ibn Thabit, to begin with, was chosen, recruited. Why? Because he had memorized the whole Quran. He had the whole Quran already. But he was not going to suffice with his own testimony until someone corroborated, or two people corroborated, right? That's the first thing. The second thing is you also read that the Quran naturally, you know, uh, was 
spread out over 23 years and towards the end of the Prophet's life, the most Quran, because more and more rulings are needed, are, are being revealed, more and more events are happening, the state is developing, scaling very fast, and then the Sahaba are all going in different directions. So he's saying the first person I found in Medina with it is Khusayy ibn Thabit. That's all. No, nothing uh, problematic there, right? But unless you know why you believe the Qur'an is miraculous and from Allah and He will keep His promise and preserve it. Unless you know how the Qur'an reached us reliably and you see it. Then you'll be, every time you come across one of these things, like, wait a minute, what does that mean? And that's sort of the part of the story I wanted to share with you. Fast forward 20 years. Someone shares with me a few years ago a hadith in Sunan Ibn Majah that says... Uh, that while they were preoccupied with the washing and burial of the Prophet wasallam, someone ran, oh, I'm sorry, one, <laughs> a goat snuck into the room of Aisha radiallahu anha and ate a parchment upon which Quran was inscribed. So if you see that in a vacuum, what does that look like? What does that look like? What could that mean? Yeah, something of the Qur'an was lost, right? It was gobbled up. You know, goats eat anything. It's true. It ate my name tag when I was a little kid in elementary school. Went to the zoo. They eat anything, <laughs> right? Goats eat. And so a goat ate a piece of the Qur'an. So a piece of the Qur'an could have been lost, right or wrong. I remember, now fast forward, right? I know where I stand and why I stand there. I remember someone asking me about this hadith. What about this hadith? And I just smiled. I smiled. I'll get to it when I get to it. I didn't scramble, right? Like life didn't come to a screeching halt. Why? Because I'm now hearing the doubt the act from a very different place. I know the Quran was not reliant upon written manuscripts. The Quran was preserved, the oral track, the memorized track, and this is a bonus, the manuscripts, right? Think about it. How in the world is a book decentralized. Everyone's hearing from the Prophet وسلم, or from his students. They're all going back to their country. They're teaching them. They're teaching them. And then we still have the same one. How does that work? Playing telephone wise, right? You guys know playing telephone? How it works? Like if I tell you the quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dog. I whisper that in your ear. And you go tell it to someone. You go to tell you go tell someone. You go tell by the time you get to the last person in this room, they're gonna say this dude, now his jokes always fail. Someone get this guy off the microphone, right? That's what the story will be with one sentence. Not, you know, 114 chapters, 6,200 plus verses. You get it? And so I realized, oh yeah. Allah said they are clear verses in the chests, in the hearts of those that were endowed with sacred knowledge. I'll figure that one out later. I'm not, my faith is no longer dependent, inshallah, right? On having a retail answer to every last doubt. Is that clear? So don't try to go seek out every doubt, because that won't build your faith to begin with. And building your faith is a different project. It's also insane for you to subject yourself to doubts. Are you so sure that you're, you'll get to the answer in time? Isn't that absolutely reckless? Like, can you imagine someone saying, uh, I'm going to subject myself to a hundred viruses to prove that my immune system is strong? What do you think of that guy? I'm going to run across this highway to prove to these people that I really am agile. 
This is insanity, isn't it? But those things, viruses and highways, will only cost you your life. Yes? Playing with your faith that way, subjecting your faith to an endless amount of doubts, will be what? At the cost of the afterlife. It will be for eternity. So that's a very important point as well. Focus on why Islam is true over why this accusation is false. Number four, hope is very important. Some people have this doubt, and it's really, they're riddled by doubt for a certain period of their life, and so they lose hope. I know a brother who said to me, uh, I know I'm not going to be able to find an answer. And I, that means I know I'm never going to accept Islam. He's a Muslim, born Muslim, like be able to come back to Islam. And I know my wife's going to leave me for it. And I know my two children are going to, you know, live in a broken home. I told him, then why are you asking me any questions? If you already know, there's no answer. Right? And so hope is very important. You know, sometimes it's even like a doctrinal issue. People think that I've technically already left because I have these questions. Therefore, I might as well just keep going. You get it? So be hopeful. It, 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 there's no reason for you to, uh, to panic. Inshallah, just put the work in. And you know, Ibn Taymiyyah, he says that people that have more doubts, because some people are just more like skeptical by nature. Radical skepticism is bad, but there is like some sort of spectrum of acceptability. Some people just like that. They're more philosophically oriented. They're more abstractly thinking. So they just become more skeptical. Ibn Taymiyyah says that for some people could be a path for them to have even stronger faith, inshallah. Because remember how I said building your faith is more important than, than what? Dismantling your doubts. But what if you have both now? What if you've built your faith and you have the answers to the counter arguments? You could be stronger than someone that simply knows intuitively or for basic, even though sufficient reasons, why Islam is true. So be hopeful. This could even be a reason for you, inshallah, to have greater certainty, greater conviction. Stay hopeful, never despair. And the last thing is no rush, slow down. When someone has uh, like trouble with the faith, even if they're walking out on the faith altogether, tell them, listen, what's the rush? If this Islam thing is wrong, you're still going to live a better life. <laughs> right? Statistically speaking, all studies agree. People report better life satisfaction. People re report more fulfillment. People report better family ties. People report better acts of like altruism and charity, which makes you feel good to do good. All of that happens way more consistently. The numbers always come in the favor of people that actively practice religion, right? So let's just, for argument's sake, I'm not saying believe in Islam just in case it's true. I'm saying as a stepping stone for now, for argument's sake, let's say Islam is false, why leave it, right? Let's imagine hypothetically that atheism is true. What have you lost by believing in Islam? You've actually gained, right? On the other side, imagine you choose atheism, for instance, and then you turn out to be wrong. And when that moment you die, the screen doesn't just turn off. What if you realize the other side is actually reality and this was almost an illusion world compared to that real world? When the veils get lifted, when the curtains are raised. You know, they call this, they taunt religion, people that follow religion and they say, this is Pascal's wager. You're telling us, 
you know, believe just in case because the, the likelihood of it being true is irrelevant. The benefit of believing in case it's true is good enough of a reason, right? Of course, you, you, you need to have firm convictions. But we say, yeah, fine. This is even the earliest Muslims. It's reported Ali ibn Abi Talib, radiallahu anhu. He, uh, he said something to this effect. He said, uh, That the, the doctor, doctors weren't very respected a long time ago because medicine was very primitive. So the doctor and the astrologer both said, both claimed that the bodies will never come out of the graves. I said, get away from me. If it is true what you say, astrologer, uh, physician, right? I've lost nothing if it's true what you say. And if it's true what I say, that there will be a resurrection, you guys are the biggest losers ever. And so there's really no rush. What is the rush? You know, for, for someone to, the stakes are that high to say, yeah, I Googled it and the first five answers weren't good enough for me. That's what your purpose and your eternity means to you? I asked the sheikh and he, he brushed me off or his answer wasn't good enough. That's what your eternity means to you? And, and it's not like, you know, also when we speak about Islam, Islam is not some sort of like cult. It's not like there's 17 people behind the mimbar that are the ummah. Islam is a religion of 2 billion people just in our era. Islam is the religion of people from the east to the west, postmodern and pre-modern, people that have way higher IQs than you, right? It's not absolutely bogus that I'm not gonna entertain this for another 30 seconds, right? Humble down and slow down, there's no reason to rush, and there's no reason to act like there's uh, something very valuable that I'm gonna miss out on if I don't jump ship right now. Here is, and I'll be done, inshallah, in eight minutes. Here is a, a very important ayah that we would be remiss if we don't address. When Allah Azza wa speaks about faith and strength in faith, He connects it with strength in commitment, strength in piety. Those who believe and they don't corrupt, they don't pollute their belief with the injustices they commit, they are the ones that will have security and they are the ones that are rightly guided. And so this ayah is telling you those who believe and don't corrupt their belief with what? It doesn't say doubts, it says wrongdoing. So seeing doubt as many times being sourced in a casual commitment to Islam, it's negligence, it's disobedience, it's defiance, Right? And how that infects the heart. You know, a lot of times we could be empathic and say, you know, this person is suffering from doubt. But we don't want to make them feel like they're a victim feather in the wind that can't control anything. You want to empower a person and tell them how it is. By the way, there are such things out there called moral weakness. You need to pick yourself up by your bootstraps. You need to do your homework. You need to be more committed to the deen. And then you'll start seeing results. Or else we're just selling people out. When you make them feel like, oh, it's none of it is your fault, you're just a, a victim of your circumstance. Tell them, no, 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 there's a fraction of this that allows for you to be a victor, as they say, of your circumstance, right? Take control of your destiny. And I want you to look at this, this chart very quickly, and it just reminds us of the beauty of the Quran's language, right? When, when the hearts are polluted, when the hearts are uh, corrupted, 
when faith is compromised, what did Allah call it? He didn't say necessarily the hearts are black. That's not really the standard language, even if there's a, maybe a reference to it. It doesn't say the hearts are dead, even though the hearts, there are ayat, a hadith where the heart might die, right? It usually says, fi qulubihim marad, marda, right? The hearts are diseased. And there's such like beauty in the fine-tuning of the Qur'an's language, those kernels of nuance, there's their treasure for us. Why disease? Because we are all extremely familiar. Who doesn't get sick? We all know what disease looks like. We all know what illness looks like. And so Allah is giving you an in-depth angle to understand what happens to your spirit as well. When he says there's spiritual diseases out there. So like you look at when you're diseased, the disease damages your perception. Give me an example, guys, quick. How does it damage your perception? Come on, give me an example. Do, do, do sick people sometimes go blind or not? You weren't thinking of an extreme example like that. That's exactly what I'm trying to do here, this exercise. Think of the spectrum of what happens with disease. Let's think of a less extreme example. When you're mildly sick, let's say a fever, can you hallucinate or not? Let's say you're not even hallucinating. Can you be a little bit disoriented from the fatigue of an illness? Right or wrong? Just a balance issue. Yes? And so the same way a disease for the body can damage your perceptions in a bunch of different ways, the disease of the spirit, the heart, can damage how your heart sees things, how it sees realities, how it sizes up value judgments, and all of that. Then you go to strength. When you are diseased, does it not affect your strength? Give me an example. Weakness, right? All the way to what? Paralysis, or maybe irreversible, requiring even amputation sometimes. There's a whole spectrum, right? You know, someone, when they were reading this to me, they said, yeah, yeah, junk food tastes mad good when I'm not being healthy. <laughs> and when I'm being healthy, I can't stand junk food. The perception is affected. Likewise, the strength is affected. So when you go to the spiritual disease, you need to know that your willpower is also affected when the heart is polluted. Your strength to do the right thing, not just see the right thing is right. Then you think about vulnerability. When someone is sick, they are more vulnerable to become more sick. If you get dizzy, you can bang your head. Right? If you have HIV, you can die from the flu, and so on and so forth. Likewise, when a person, it's a slippery slope, you give in to a sinful lifestyle, it can slip to much uglier places. It can become a satanic lifestyle. And likewise, the body feels the pain of sickness, uh, and that's a blessing to be able to try to reverse it if you can. Uh, and the spirit also feels the pain of its diseases. And so the spectrum of severity between the two, something I want you to appreciate. Many times people, and I have countless stories that I cannot share tonight, and Ibn al-Qayyim talks about this, you know, <laughs> uh, 700 years ago, 600 years ago. He says usually people, it's a disease of desire, temptation, lack of strength of the heart, so they give in to it, and then it flips into a disease of doubts after that. You want to start justifying, you want to not feel guilty, and so you begin to move the goalposts. But these, of course, feed into each other, both of them, the doubts and the desires, the diseases of the heart. Last slide, or, yeah. How do you build faith? So, that's profound. 
Can someone adjust this? Huh? Oh, it's social hall. Thank you, social hall. So we spoke about how faith is lost. It could be a desire that leads to a doubt, and that's the slippery slope. Now, how is faith built? Because we said building faith is the most important. So modern psychologists, social scientists, they look at the patterns in human behavior and why they believe certain things. They say that faith is built either because of your associations, who you associate with. It's called social conditioning, right? You believe this restaurant or this fashion or this religion is better because of just what's around you. You take it from the air. Uh, and then there's persuasion, because if you're persuaded of something, you're more likely to break away from the herd, because that's the way Allah created you. You respect your mind, you value your mind. When your mind is compelled to something, you might break away. Then there's faith of by actualization, meaning faith by experience. Maybe that's an easier term. Faith by experience. And it's extremely important for us all to be invested in experiencing our own faith. That's what I want to focus on here. I'll tell you why. If everyone and their mother likes cheesecake, you're probably going to like cheesecake. Yes? But then the doctor persuades you that, no, 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 you're a special case. You're, you have a severe condition of diabetes. You can die from cheesecake. Will you be able to resist the herd effect and, and stop eating cheesecake? That night at least? <laughs> That's actually what I'm actually getting to this. You'll say, yeah, absolutely. You, you may even be disgusted. You see it as death, right? But then week in, week out, you're called the party pooper. You're being sort of shamed. Come on, man, just a little bit. This is, this is a small slice. This is organic. <laughs> this one is cane sugar, right? Uh, this one's fat-free creamed. And they just keep pestering and pestering and pestering, even though you're persuaded. Your new conviction is cheesecake is bad. What's going to happen over time? You're going to unpersuade yourself because of the power of association. Association is the most common reason for you to have a belief in anything. Okay? Experience is the strongest, but association is the most common. So you'll start saying, maybe I'm better now. I mean, it was, it's been two months since the appointment. Maybe I'm better now. Maybe You actually don't have good reasons to believe that. You just, the maybes, because you want it to be true. Remember we, what we began with, the bias that you want to confirm? Uh, maybe just half a slice, right? <laughs> maybe, 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 maybe. And then you unpersuade yourself because of the power of socialization or the atmosphere, the environment. But if you actually experienced death by cheesecake and Allah permitted you a second life, I would like to think you'd be farther away from caving. Right or wrong? That faith is the exact same way. As for association, that just tells you the importance of us having, you know, this, this shows you the power of community. To offer the right emotional input where people can feel at peace with their Islam. Right? To associate with more Muslims. To be less, you know, pressed by that feeling, that subconscious feeling in the outside world that I'm a misfit in society. That could be more powerful, by the way, in saving the faith of people and keeping doubts off than a thousand lectures. Because that's just how most people operate. And then, you talk about persuasion, and that's the power of knowledge. Owning, learning about your faith and the why of your faith, why it's true. The intellectual input, the data. 
And then the third one is something no one can do for you but yourself. That's the power of community. It's the power of, or the importance of, you know, research institutes and the right kind of content, intellectually stimulating to persuade. But then experience, you've got to put in the work. That's the power of worship, right? That's the power of worship. You keep knocking. You keep knocking. As Ibn Mas'ud said, Allah will open the door. You just keep knocking. You think you're going to keep knocking on Allah's door and he won't open? As Ibn Ata, a secondary, rahimahullah, uh, he said, don't ever abandon the dhikr of Allah Azza wa Jal, remembering Allah because you don't feel your presence with Allah. He said, oh, I don't feel it, so I'm going to stop. He says, no. He says, your forgetfulness of his remembrance is worse than your forgetfulness in his remembrance. Like for you to remember Allah in your prayers, in your Quran, even if your mind drifts, it's better than you not doing it to begin with. You get it? Your forgetfulness in his remembrance is better than your forgetfulness away from his remembrance. And perhaps he'll elevate you eventually. Just keep knocking, right? Elevate you from being heedless to being alert and from being alert to entering in his presence and from being in his presence to seeing everything else as insignificant except the one you're remembering. And Allah can certainly do that for you. It's not difficult for Allah, he said. You keep knocking. People say, I stopped praying because I didn't feel it. Remember I told you that? They felt like they didn't get anything out of religion. Tell them that's the greatest sign of sincerity, that it's not pleasureful or pleasurable for you, yet you still did it. That means you're sincere. That means you did it for Allah's pleasure, not for your pleasure. Keep knocking. You tell people that's the power of worship. I shared with you guys a story before about the, the, the Baptist woman, right, who my friend tried to persuade. I think it's, it matches up really well with association, persuasion, experience. He's talking to her and she's like, listen, no matter what you say, She's like 70 years old, you know, bonnet and long skirt, Southern Baptist. Uh, and she said to him, I, you will never persuade me to be Muslim. Do you know why? He said, why? She said, because Jesus speaks to me at night. If you just believe in him, he'll speak to you too. <laughs> so he realized that end, so he quit. Like, okay, I got to like, you know, regroup, think of a new strategy. He comes back to her a few days later. He says, you know, you were right. She said, what do you mean? He said, he spoke to me. She said, who? He said, Jesus. <laughs> She said, what? I told you, I told you, you just got to believe. You know, one of those believes. Uh, and he said, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, he said he didn't know you. <laughs> she said, what? He said, yeah, he said he never spoke to you before. She said, you weren't speaking to Jesus, you were speaking to the devil. <laughs> so he's like, lady, one of us was speaking to the devil. How, how in the world do we figure out which one was speaking to the devil? Like, you can't base your faith on some voices you hear in the dark, Right? She, she says, I know you, you tricky man. You, she kept, but moral of the story, she never became Muslim, as far as I can tell. Why? Because she believed falsely that she experienced faith. Can you imagine now for a Muslim that has all three, that that's how powerful experience is, even if it's presumed, right? Imagine you have the association element, the power of community. You have the persuasion element, Islam is actually objectively provable, right? And then you experience it yourself. That's when you own faith. As Dr. Hatim al-Hajj says, that's the day, may Allah forbid, that you wake up in the morning and everybody left Islam, the imam of the masjid, may Allah forbid, left Islam, and you don't even care. Like, I don't care. I have my faith. My faith doesn't get rattled. I own it. It's mine. It's not dependent on anything anymore. May Allah allow us to have faith that never wavers. Subhanakallahum bihamdik. Shadu Allah ilaha 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 ila